0: All right, if you would, we're, um, if you open your Bibles or just look along in your bulletin, we're in Romans chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through, what are we looking at? 1 through 8. Look at that. uh, This morning. This morning, we're going to experience a shift in Paul's letter to the Romans. Verses 1 and 2 can be described as a summary of the entire Christian life. Sometimes it's nice to have. Simple summaries, isn't it? Well, what I think we'll find this morning is though uh, though it's a simple summary on paper, it's, it can be rather difficult to press into our lives. But isn't that true of all God's truth? Simple yet hard. May God bless the study of his word this morning. Romans 12, beginning in verse 1. but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having these gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you give us this word, that it opens our eyes to your mercy and to your grace, that it shows us how we as creatures made in your image are to respond to, to your grace. Um, may your spirit open our, our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears that we may more fully comprehend this and bring it into our lives, we pray. Amen. How do you do with commitments? Commitments. If you're not sure, maybe look back on this year's New Year's resolutions. We're, we're three months in, how, how are they going? <laughs> Statistics say that only 8% of New Year's resolutions succeed. In his book, Conscious Living, Dr. Gay Hendricks writes about the tepid nature of our commitments. Listen to what he writes. 99% commitment is not possible. We are either 100% or not committed at all. I was amazed to discover this because I had made a lifestyle out of tepid commitments that turned out to be non-commitments. I was just conning myself that I was partly committed. If I, had adapted, uh, I had adapted to the pain of early rejection with the decision, don't play. If I didn't play, I wouldn't have to face losing And if I were forced to play, I could always play half-heartedly. If I lost, I could say it didn't matter because I was not trying. It took me many years to realize that I wasn't even in the game if I was not committed. My body might have been out on the field, but my soul was on the bench. Soulless play is worse than no play At all. Part of our fallen human nature is that we make commitments, but we're not fully committed. You know that feeling, don't you? That feeling of soulless play in school, at work, in relationships. Committed, but not really. You go through the motions, but it's a soulless exercise. Our bodies are going through the motions on the playing field, but our souls are on the bench. Can this also be true of our commitments to God? I think it can. But it isn't supposed to be. You see, because God is the great and glorious creator of all things, including you and me, our lives are to be lived in joyful, total commitment to him. But this is not how our world sees it, right? Much of our world lives as if God doesn't even exist. But tell me, is it not also true for the Christian? We, we who confess that God is to be the highest joyful end of our lives, can we not find ourselves at, at soulless play? Our bodies can display Christian activity, but our souls are on the bench. And soulless play is worse than no play at all. And so Paul makes a grand appeal to us this morning. Behold the grace of God. See how it transforms us. See how it puts our soul at play. The grace of God transforms us in three ways we see here in a passage. It transforms how we relate to God, how we relate to ourselves, and how we relate to others in the church. First and most importantly, God's grace transforms how we relate to God. You see, when God's grace comes upon you, the proper and the logical response is to offer the entirety of your life in joyful devotion to God. Not partially, not sometimes, but all of you, all the time. St. Augustine said this, listen closely. He said, there can only be two basic loves. The love of God unto the forgetfulness of self or the love of self unto the forgetfulness and denial of God. Paul wants the Christians in Rome and us (laughs) to see that the proper way to relate to God is by offering oneself back to God in complete devotion. Now, Paul could have ushered an ultimatum. He could have said, come on, you Christians, you've got to get it right. You should know better than this. Stop living for yourselves and live for God and his kingdom. That's not how Paul handles it. See, Paul knows something about our human nature. He knows that we don't like to be told what to do. We like to feel part of the decision-making process, right? So Paul instead does what? He makes an appeal. He says, look at there, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Paul wants us to take all the facts in, to chew on them, to consider all the possibilities, to weigh our options, and then respond. See, Paul is convinced that if Christians would just ponder something about God, then we would all give ourselves fully to Him. And what is this to which Paul appeals? What is it about God that if we would but chew on it and toss it around in our heads, that that would change us so positively? What is it? God's mercy, his grace. Look at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. The therefore is important. It means, um, in light of all that I've written so far in the preceding 11 chapters about the mercies of God. Now, we're not going to go back and and uh, re-read the whole thing, all right? So, um, Paul has written a lot. Let me refresh you. Paul has said that no one, no one has ever lived a life that pleases God. In Romans 3, Paul states that everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, are under sin, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside. The state of human beings is is dire, is what Paul has shown us. No one desires God, no one lives for God, but God in mercy gives us spiritual life and he calls out to us to bring us to him. See, if you're a Christian, understand this. I think you know this. But, but God in his mercy sent you the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to see Christ, to open your mind to understand the truth about Christ and your need for him. And understand this. Unless God mercifully did this for you, you would never have come to know Christ as your savior. You would, you would never even know that you were lost You would never come to trust in Christ nor experience the joy of salvation. But you have. God has lavished his mercy upon you. Now, Christian, here's what Paul says is to be our proper response to the mercies of God. He says what? Offer yourselves. That is, present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, living sacrifice is an oxymoron, right? I mean, in the temple, priests used to offer up many types of sacrifices, and in the end, none of them were living. What is Paul getting at? Well, this isn't you at time making sacrifices when things are easy or convenient or when you feel really guilty after a sermon. this isn't you carving out time or energy during the week so you can do your allotted church work. This is not you giving time or money, although there's a place for that. No, this is, this is you offering up all of you and saying, God, all that I am and all that I do is purely for you. The Old Testament sacrifice that most lines up with what Paul is saying here is what was called the whole burnt offering. One commentator writes that the whole burnt offering was a, vo- was a valuable animal from your flock. It had to be without defect, holy, and acceptable. Why? Such an animal was expensive. It showed that, that all that you had was at God's disposal, that you did not give God your leftovers. The burnt offering was always burnt totally and it represented complete consecration and devotion to God. The sacrifice is to be holy, which means it's consecrated or set apart or dedicated entirely to God and therefore acceptable and pleasing to Him. At the end of verse 1, Paul answers the question, why? Why would you and I offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God? Paul's answer is because it makes the most logical sense. Paul says that when you take it all in, it's not just the right thing to do, but it's also the logical or reasonable thing to do. Where does he say that? Some of you are looking down. I don't see that there, Mark. Where is that? Well, unfortunately, the, the, the last little phrase at the end of verse 1 obscures what Paul is saying. Most all of our English Bibles translate it like ours here this morning. And it says, which is your spiritual worship. But actually, the Greek word here that we translate as spiritual is logikane. From, from where we get our English word, logical <laughs> So what Paul is saying, he's saying that in light of God's mercy, offering ourselves to God is to be seen, is to be seen as the logical or reasonable response. In other words, once you've made some clear, done some clear thinking on this subject of God's grace towards you, the only logical response is to sacrifice your life as a living sacrifice to God. See, to give yourself half-heartedly or partially to God betrays your lack of thoughtfulness. To have your soul sitting on the sideline of your life for God makes no sense in light of God's mercy towards you. Now let me ask you, this all makes sense, right? I mean, it is logical. In our our heads, we we read this through and we go, yes, that's so right. Right? but it's easier said than done, right? Which is why Paul presents us with verse two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, one reason why drug addiction is so debilitating is that it's not enough to cure someone of their chemical dependency. You have to extricate them from an entire way of living. See, a drug addicted person isn't just trapped by the chemicals, he's trapped by his peer group of fellow addicts, he's trapped uh, with a negative outlook on life, he's trapped with poor coping skills and people's skills, he's trapped with bad character habits of slothfulness and lying and excuse making. So it's not enough to get over the chemicals, is it? There's a whole transformation or renewal of the mind that needs to take place. So too for the Christian. See, it's entirely possible that a Christian can have salvation and still be conformed to the pattern of this world. What is the sinful pattern of this world like? Well, the pattern of this world is that, well, God is just who you want him to be. The pattern of this world is that a a genuine life is is where you determine what is worthwhile and you chase after it. The pattern of this world is to be true to yourself, whatever the heck that is. The pattern of this world is to focus on the here and now, what can make you happy in the moment. The pattern of the world says, go be a good person so that you can feel good about yourself. The pattern of this world says that your work and your relationships and everything around you is for your consumption and for your advancement. The pattern of this world is you on your own throne. My friends, this is the way of death. The gospel invites you to die to your old self, that old way you were conformed to with the the pattern of this world. Christian, it's not enough to be saved and go about your merry way. Like a drug addict, we have um, an entire way of living that needs to be uprooted and and replaced. Paul says, do not be conformed, but be transformed. The word here is (laughs) metamorphoamite. my Greek. It's, in, it's written in Greek here, so a little hard for me to read sometimes. Uh, it's from where we get our word metamorphosis, right? And, and metamorphosis takes place how? How does metamorphosis take place? Yes, it's the Holy Spirit coming upon you and giving you life in Him. But you and I must also want it, <laughs> desire it, need it, and pursue it. And when we do that, then the Holy Spirit empowers us in this metamorphosis. Paul writes that this transformation is by the renewal of your mind. Like the addict who needs to kick out his old ways of thinking and living, so too you and me. This phrase, renewal of your mind, it's in the present tense, which implies that this is an ongoing reality in the Christian's life. Christian, until you die or until Jesus returns, whatever comes first, this will be a work that you participate in. We have another name for it. We call it sanctification. See, it's not enough to think as many Christians do. Oh, whew, I'm good enough now. Boy, you should have seen that old me. Boy, I was quite the partier, you know. <laughs> whew, glad that's over. I'm good now, right? Uh, no. If you think that way, then you, then you don't understand two things. How messed up and sinful you still are. And just how great are the mercies of God towards you still. Now this renewal of the mind involves what? Paul writes, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. What does this mean? Well, it means we flush out all the, of the thinking and the ways of the world that are corrupting us and, and we, we flush them out with the goodness of God's word and, and um, pictures and images of what Christ has done for us. In Colossians, Paul writes that, that we are to have the truth of God's word dwell in us richly. In Philippians 4, eight, if you want to write that down, you can refer to it later. Paul writes, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The former uh, president of my seminary, Covenant Theological Seminary, Brian Chappell, relates a story of a woman who went to the park This woman goes to the park. She's there with her kids. They're a little bit older, so they're able to kind of run around on their own, don't need a whole lot of supervision. She's there just kind of observing. And she noticed this car, like, peels into the parking lot and parks in great haste. And this young woman gets out and grabs a bag and, like, skips off to a picnic table, all excited, as if she couldn't wait to meet somebody there. In her mind, this woman was thinking, who could she be so excited to meet? Maybe it's her maybe it's her husband. He's like only gets a few minutes at work and they're gonna meet at the park and they're gonna share a picnic together. Or maybe, maybe it's her boyfriend, maybe she's not married, maybe maybe this maybe this guy's gonna even propose to her on this beautiful sunny day. Or, or maybe maybe she is married, but maybe maybe she's not meeting her husband. Maybe this is someone else. In her mind, she's wondering, but the, after a while, no one came, and so she goes back to attending to her kids. But a little while later, she turns and she looks at this woman at the bench, and her heart breaks. She sees the woman at the, at the picnic table reading her Bible. The, the person that she could not wait to meet with was her Lord. And in that moment, this woman began to weep with tears. She remembered when her life was filled with soul-filled playtime with her Lord. She remembered when she was eager to carve out time to be with her Savior, Savior. And now her body was in the game, but her soul was on the bench. Christian, you've experienced that, haven't you? I know I have. Maybe you're experiencing that right now. You look at your life and you realize the life that you're living really isn't all in for God. You give him leftovers. Maybe you remember that time when your soul was alive with joy to meet with your Savior and see him transform your life. What are we to do in those circumstances? Are we to, to hear the voice of condemnation? Go be a better Christian. You need to read your Bible more. You need to pray more. You need to spend more time with Christians. And by the way, if you've got time, evangelize. No. Paul shows us. What, what is the response when we find ourselves with our souls on the bench? <laughs> is, to, is to ponder the mercy and the grace of God that has been abundantly poured out on you. Chew on it, take it in, believe it, receive it, and respond with joy and see where that takes you. So the grace of God transforms how we relate to God. Also, the grace of God transforms how we relate to ourselves. Here Paul stresses that humility isn't merely desirable, but that it is necessary for the true Christian. Paul begins verse 3 by saying, For by the grace given me. My friends, Paul himself is modeling the humble life. Only by grace, Paul is saying, only by grace am I in the position to teach you and to lead you. For by the grace given to me, Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. Paul is not exempting anyone from this call to humility. Problem is, prideful people are the last ones to think that they lack humility. And know this on a more important note, because none of us are that person, right? Think of this. If just one member of the body of Christ relates to the other members from a position of pridefulness, then the whole body suffers. These words are for all of us. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourselves with sober judgment Paul says you must always be on the lookout for this danger see we need to know and accept who we are how God has uniquely made us what our strengths are and what our weaknesses are and not to puff up our strengths nor tear ourselves down as we compare ourselves to others see Paul isn't saying that we are to think low of ourselves did he No, he said, not to think too high. We ought not to think too high, nor are we to think too low. When we think soberly about who we now are in Christ, we can now finally take a true assessment that causes us not to think too high or too low. See, the pattern of this world says Don't judge me. Who are you to judge me? I'm fine just the way I am. But the cross allows you to honestly look at your sinfulness that still remains. See, when you look to the cross with sober judgment, you come to know two things. One, my sin is really there, (laughs) which means I cannot ignore it like I used to. And two, My savior has taken all my sin and given me all his righteousness. You must understand what Jesus did on the cross for you. Jesus didn't just take your sins and wash you clean as glorious and great as that is. Jesus also gave you his righteousness. That is his perfect record and his perfect relationship with the heavenly father. Christ gives to you. If you struggle with low self-esteem, know that you're looking for the wrong thing. You do not need self-esteem, you need divine esteem. You need to hear from God. You need to hear him say, hey, you're right. You really aren't the person you know you should be. And yeah, you've been trying to fool other people, but you're not fooling me. And guess what? Yeah, you're right. You can't do anything about it. But cheer up. I've given you my son. Believe in him and all that is beautiful about him, that is good and right about Jesus, will be given to you. It'll become yours. You see, when your value and your worth come to you as a gift from Christ, you will not think too high of yourself nor too low of yourself. Why does Paul address this right here? I mean, right after talking about giving our lives fully as living sacrifices to God. Because he's transitioning to talk about about how each and every Christian is a member of the body of Christ. And so we must fit in as healthy members. So we've seen that there that grace transforms how we relate to God and how we relate to others. Now we will finish by looking at how it transforms how we relate to others in the church. Did you watch March Madness? Did you you see the final championship game, right? It's over, so we know who won, those of you who don't know. But um, the Villanova Wildcats, they won it all. They're champions and uh, unlikely ones at that, well then maybe not. The interesting thing about the Villanova basketball team is that it has no stars on it. There's not, not one player on the team that is expected to be drafted anywhere high in the NBA uh, basketball draft. How did they do it? Teamwork. Each player has certain strengths and weaknesses. And as a team, they play off each other's gifts. They play with great joy and unity of purpose. And it starts with the coach, Coach Jay Wright. I actually heard him say um, shortly before the game, here's what he said, listen to what he said. The best me there is can only exist as part of a team. The best me there is can only exist as part of a team. Coach Wright knows that the best him can only happen if he's connected to his team and and when they're functioning, not as a collection of individuals, but rather as they all commit to be part of one body, the team, with Coach Wright as as their head. My friends, this isn't just a winning formula on the basketball court. Paul says that this is the formula that Christ has given to us, the church. Paul says in verse 5 that though many, we are one body in Christ. You know, Christians in America today, they they need um, to hear this. In America, it's the individual who tends to sit on the pedestal And so it's no surprise that when Christians come to faith in Christ, they tend to see salvation from an individualistic perspective. That Jesus came down to save them as an individual. And therefore, the Christian life is all about an individual's vertical relationship with Jesus. And so when we think of success in our Christian life, it's it's almost always about a personal success. See, unless we're careful, we can think of salvation individualistically. A sign that you consider things this way is to think about what goes through your head during the Lord's Prayer. You know, the words say, Our Father and our daily bread and our debts. And when you're praying, though, praying all that, though, is in your mind it kind of really just kind of thinking, My Father in heaven, <laughs> my daily bread, forgive me my debts? Do you pray the Lord's Prayer individualistically? Or do you pray with the mindset that we're all praying collectively for each other? Some of you are going, dang,
1: dang, you got me on that
0: one. Don't. Don't get me wrong, if you enjoy peace with God, you have a personal relationship with him. He knows you by name, you are an individual, but know this, You were saved into Christ's body. Salvation has always been a welcome into the people of God. And so here's what we must come to see. That when Christ calls you to himself, he's calling you into his one body, the church. You are one of many members. As Paul ends verse five, he says you are Individually, members, and notice he doesn't say of his body. He says, members, one of another. He's really emphasizing this connectedness of the body of Christ. Now, the word member needs clarifying. You See, um, this isn't like a gym membership. (laughs) I mean, though many Christians might think of it that way, though. Well, you join a gym because it's got like good equipment, a nice locker, good instructors, and like maybe like some pretty people there, right? Okay, uh, that's not why you join, I guess. Okay, um, and you will continue to be a member so long as the gym keeps meeting your expectations. But the word "member" here refers to body parts. When you hear those news reports on television that a body was found a dismembered body was found in the woods it means that members were cut off arms and legs that is the meaning that paul is using here that's what member means unfortunately many christians live as if they are a cut off member My friends, oh, that the body of Christ would be able to discern the body of Christ. That we would love the body of Christ just as much as Jesus loves his body. Yes, love the church with all her dysfunctions. Yes, love the church, yes, with all the sanctification that still needs to be done. Oh, that we would stop evaluating what the church has to offer us and start evaluating how we can connect and bless the body. Paul tells us that we each have a part to play. Paul writes in verse 4, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. The church is the body of Christ. We have one body and many members, and not all members have the same function. Hallelujah to that, right? That's pretty good, right? If we were all arms, that would just be like a big arms race. (laughs) I'm going to be better than the next arm. The pride would just go up, like, look at me, you know? Thankfully, we're not all the same. All right, that didn't go over so well. All right, look at verse six. (laughs) I knew I took that out of my notes for a reason. Shouldn't have said that. All right, verse six says, this is where you're going to underline something. So get your bulletin. You really are going to look at verse 6. Circle gifts and grace. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. These words both come from the same Greek root word. The word gift is the Greek word charisma. The The word grace is the Greek word charis. Charisma means to grace or to favor with a gift. Paul says that we each have grace gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Christian, God has given you at least one grace gift. Verse 6, Paul says, what are we supposed to do with these gifts? God has given you a grace gift. What are we to do? Any idea? Oh, well, he says right here. Okay. Look at verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. You know, we like to think that we don't need to be told to use the gifts that God has been given to us. But we do, don't we? Christian, when God saves you into his body, he doesn't bring you in empty-handed. He gives you gifts so that you may enjoy being a member The gifts that he gives you when you utilize them and develop them, you will enjoy them. Every Christian has at least one, if not more, spiritual gifts. That's what we call them, spiritual gifts. Paul gives us just seven of them in his list. We see prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, and mercy. And then with each of these, Paul tells us how we're to use them. I'm not going into details. But essentially, Paul is saying, use them faithfully, as God has given them to you. I don't have time to to speak or teach on spiritual gifts. I put a nice handout in the bulletin there that covers all of the spiritual gifts and should be quite helpful for you. The important point for today is this. Know that if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit has given you gifts, special talents that are needed for the body of Christ. Others in the church may share your gifts, but nobody in the church has them all, which is why we need each member of the body to be part of the body, and that we would all use our gifts with joy and delight. I, too, want to make an appeal to you. I want to appeal to you, therefore, brethren, to, to seek, to uncover and discover and develop your spiritual gifts read through this handout. Uh, on page two, there's a website you can go to where you can just, it asks a bunch of questions, you know? Uh, like, do you like to walk a dog or not? You know, kind of things like that. And, um, and at the end, you hit submit, and it will give you a uh, responses to what your likely spiritual gifts are. So uh, that's spiritualgiftstest.com. So I'm just asking that you do the work. You see, it makes sense, right? If being a living sacrifice means that you use your gifts for the body of Christ, then your commitment to God means that you must also be committed to the gifts that he has given you. So invest time. Get to know them. Develop them. Did you uh, catch the finale of American Idol? Okay, spoiler alert. I know you know now who won the... uh, Big basketball game, but all right. A wonderful young singer named Trent Harmon won. He's got an amazing voice. And at the end, when it's announced that he won. All this confetti comes down, and he's just like overjoyed. He's like crying. And he just can barely stand up. And when interviewed, the overjoyed and speechless Harmon said, "I have worked so hard." God has given me a wonderful gift, and I have worked so hard. Oh, that we could say that. that we know the gifts that God has given us, and that we see them as wonderful. and because we delight in our God and live for Him, that, that we work hard. christian god has given you wonderful gifts talents and abilities pour your life into god and into the gifts that he has given you serve the body here with your grace gifts many of you know some many of you are on our grace teams we've lined up teams and guess what if you're on the serve team you probably have a gift of service or something like that right we've got a number of teams you can find information in the in the foyer on that we've got a youth ministry team and a children's ministry team, we would love to have a communications team. Uh, We don't have one as of yet. So anyway, if you haven't already, consider joining one of our teams. And when you do, serve joyfully as a response to God's mercy. Develop and use the gifts that God has given you. Know this, if you do not use them, they will atrophy. And you will experience soulless play. But if uncover the gifts that God has given you and you work to develop them, then your soul will be full of joy and it will be playful. I mean, it makes sense, right? In light of all that we just saw here, that, that if you see how much God has showered you with his mercy and you respond with the logical response of offering up your life as a living sacrifice to Him, and, and you commit to, to um, having your mind purged of and transformed by God's grace, and if you don't see yourself too high or, or too low, and you see that God has given you gifts like this, it, does, does living a life in light of that, does that sound anything like soulless play? No, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid far from it. it. It sounds like living life as God has intended us to live our lives. Once again, St. Augustine said, there can only be two basic loves, the love of God unto forgetfulness of self or the love of self unto the forgetfulness and denial of God. Which will it be? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your mercies are new every morning because we are a people who need your mercies new every morning. We thank you that you've given us new life. We thank you that you've called us not to something boring or drudgery. You've called us to goodness and greatness, a, a coming alive to who we really can be in Christ Jesus. May your people here long for that. Um, May we love each other as much as you love us. May we at least seek for that. May you knit us together here at Grace Church. May we grow in your grace. um, And may your purposes be worked in and through us, we pray. Amen.